When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Daisy Jones and the fictional Fleetwood Mac edition. It's Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023. On today's show, Daisy Jones and the Six is an Amazon Prime show. It offers up a very fictionalized analog to the band Fleetwood Mac. It stars Riley Keough and Sam Claflin. And then well, we marched to the Oscars. We took a look around. We discussed. And then we took a breather to discuss a much smaller film. It's called Palm Trees and Power Lines. It's as excruciating a study of a seduction as you will ever witness. It stars Lily McInerney and Jonathan Tucker. And finally, hip-hop is uh, 50 years old. It is time to legalize sampling. So argues Dan Charnas in Slate. We'll be joined by Dan, one of the, truly, in my estimation, one of the great hip-hop journalists of all time. So we're excited. Joining me first is uh, Julia Turner of the LA Times. Uh, Julia, you have a new job title and a new job, a promotion. Congratulations. Can you describe it for us? Thank you. I am now the Senior Vice President of Content Business Strategy at the Los Angeles Times, which I'm very excited about. It's um, kind of more of a digital strategy job working with everybody around the company. So, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, very cool. And Mazel. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. Shall we uh, Shall we dig in? Shall we make a show? Let's do it. Marvelous. Daisy Jones and the Six. It's on Amazon Prime, as I said. It's a fictionalized behind-the-scenes peek at a 70s rock band, pretty clearly modeled on Fleetwood Mac. Clearly, but also I'd say pretty loosely, too. It follows their rise from obscurity as a Pittsburgh bar band at the top of the charts. And then, presumably, and this is hinted at pretty strongly in the in the opening five minutes of the show, Presumably through to their dissolution in all its senses, it's based on a novel by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It stars Riley Keough, Sam Claflin, various others. In the scene, we're about to hear the band's having their very first recording session with Daisy. She's been brought in to improve their sound, and she immediately butts head with the lead singer, Billy Dunn, over some lyrics. Let's uh, have a listen. Can I ask you a question? What do you think the song's about? What do I think the song is about what the song yeah, what that is I wrote song what about? do I think the song that I wrote is about it's about starting a new life okay. Daisy it's about redemption redemption from from what from letting people down so guilt it's about guilt no it's not about guilt I'm it's sorry I'm not trying to pry or anything I'm just trying to you know get us on the same page and understand the story better so that I can help which is I think that's why I'm here I'm assuming it's about you <laughs> okay so you let somebody down Right? And now you're you're saying, you know, everything's fine. Look at us now. Everything's in the past. It, nothing, yeah, it what's wrong with that? I don't believe it. And it doesn't sound honest. And it sounds simple. And I don't know you very well. You don't seem simple to me. All right, Julia, let me start with you. This is, uh, you know, we've all consumed our share of behind-the-scenes VH1 specials. Uh, we've had mockumentary after mockumentary going back to Spinal Tap. There's like kind of a Stations of the Cross inevitability to narratives like this one. Is it possible to make something like this fresh? Did they do it with Daisy Jones and the Six? I feel like I have to call back to our conversation last week about Trough TV because the other <laughs> problem with the idea of oh, Trough TV is that there's still shows like this. I loved this show. I think that if this show had come out at a moment when fewer shows were out, it would be like a holy moly, you got to watch this sensation. And instead it sort of feels like, oh yeah, I heard that's good. It's kind of good. Oh yeah, Riley Q. You know, like it doesn't feel like it's grabbing the world and setting it on its ear. But I was astounded by how much I enjoyed this show, which does a few difficult things very well. And the most important difficult thing it does very well 
in any production where you're portraying like the quiddity of something, it's about a stand-up. You got to make them do stand-up like a Marvelous mm-hmm. Mrs. Maisel. It's about sketch comedy. You got to make them yeah. do sketch comedy like Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Fam- famously excellent at that. You, you, you're you making a thinly veiled biopic documentary miniseries TV show about Fleetwood Mac, beloved, well-known music adored by many the songs work like the music works like when they pick up their guitars and they start to sing you're not like oh god here comes the clunker i'm supposed to believe that this is a transporting hit <laughs> did we unravel a long time ago is there too much we don't know i wish it was easy but it isn't so you're like, uh, you buy it. You're like, where can I buy that song? In fact, they've released the soundtrack to this season and it's like uh, topping the emerging Billboard artist chart. So just getting the music to work is like a triumph, triumph number one. And then triumph number two is I think the performances and the ways in which the characters are sketched are largely pretty excellent and intriguing. And then triumph number three is that Because, you know, in your mind somewhere, even if you're not a super fan or a major rock historian like me, that um, whatever the heck happened with Fleetwood Mac and its romantic entanglements, you're like, ooh, drama. (laughs) So, So you've got this kind of ticking, you've got this thriller suspense narrative too of like well and who's gonna fall in love with whom and who's gonna break whose heart and you know there's just like a great soap opera underneath it all i like came into this show thinking like yeah sure i'll watch this this week and came out of it being like damn that's a very good show am i am i nuts is she nuts what do you think dana i mean i am surprised at julia's degree of enthusiasm but but I'm, I'm, I find it kind of sweet as well. I mean, I disagree on one major thing, which is that I do not think the music is memorable at all, the fake music that's created for the show. And the first thing I wanted to say, this is my biggest note circled on my notes while watching, is that the show does itself no favors by using a lot of really great original needle drops, right? So, you know, once you've heard T-Rex sing Bang a Gong, right, or Billy Preston <laughs> sing Will It Go Round in Circles, both of which are featured in big montages in, in episodes of this show... So I don't think that the songwriting for the band is particularly strong. And that, to me, cuts into the drama as well, because something I do like about the show is that singing and songwriting is is an important dramatic element in the show. You know, showing people writing songs together and working them out in the studio and, you know, figuring out whether a song works or not. Those scenes would be stronger, I think, if this, the songs were memorable to me as a watcher. And coming away, I cannot hum the tune of a single original Daisy Jones in the Sixth song. But, but I did believe dramatically in the context of the show that they were singer-songwriters. And Sam Claflin and Riley Keough do their own singing. They're not, you know, particularly distinctive singers, but they have really nice voices and they sound nice together. And I, I believed dramatically that they and the other members of the band were performers. So that's important. The other big note I have about the feeling of watching this show, which is strangely lulling and which I got through six episodes mm. of, and despite not having a ton of enthusiasm about it. Um, It's very pleasant watching. Um, Everybody in it is beautiful and has very nice teeth in a very TV star way. And, uh, But it had this, maybe this part of the the teeth and the beautiful people as part of it, or the, you know, the period costumes that felt a little bit too pristine, like everybody's constantly standing in front of a lava lamp and a macrame wall hanging while wearing a peasant skirt. (laughs) It's like so 70s, it never lets you forget for a second that it takes place in the 70s. But the note that I have about an earlier segment we did on this show is not about trough TV, but about AI. Like this show felt weirdly uncanny. It felt strangely like generated by a TV generator in some way. And I don't mean to suggest by that that it seemed soulless or cynical. Even this, the sweetness and the kind of sincerity of it felt familiar. It just, it felt a, it felt like a very template sort of show. But yet, I have to say, Uncanny Valley or not, I, I couldn't stop watching. And there's only two more episodes to go in the season, so I, I'm sure I'll finish out the season. Um, so yeah, it was a curious combination of Haha, ha, this is so ridiculous. I don't really believe they're a band because I don't remember their songs. And then, ooh, what's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Steve, I want you to split the difference and tell tell us what you thought. 
I can only split hairs at this point because I sort of agree with both of you. I mean, I, I mean, I can just say up front, I loved it, and um, I, I'm going to stick with it to the end. Um, but then the question is, well, why did I love it? I mean, I, and then I would also agree with Dana that I think the songs are. It, it, listen, if people could write hit songs on command, they would. There is a reason why the songs that they play, the needle drops, as you say, Dana, they're earworm melodies, beautifully produced records instantly familiar because they become iconic i mean it's rare it's rare for a song to yeah i just that. just just to briefly clarify memorable is not the word i used i would right. agree with i'm not right. saying that they've actually achieved writing new fleetwood mac songs it's no, just no, no, that no, no, of course for the for those scenes not to be just like soul clutchingly cringe is a major achievement, even just to get to the baseline. Yes. Like, I sort of believe this was a hit in the 70s. Yes, <laughs> that, is, that is a triumph. That, and that was precisely my hair split. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of in splitting the hair. I'm actually trying to say that you're, I think, basically agreeing with one another. I mean, but, you know, th- it's a, a couple of things. So, like, I agree with Dana's good dentition note. I mean, it's just they have lovely teeth. They're wonderful to look at. The patina of 1970s Los Angeles, you know, it's like this David Hockney you know, painting that you're crawling. It's sort of a behind the music cross with the David Hockney canvas and you get to crawl inside of it in this utterly comforting way. I, the thing I, I mean, I hate to just sort of repeat and agree with everything you said. There's, there's something that Dana, that, that you experienced that I really experienced too, which is that the raw material for, for this show was absolutely nobody's first person experience of LA in the 1970s or being in a rock band. It was, it, it, felt to me very strongly as though the raw material for this show was watching VH1 behind the music documentaries and, you know, staring into the gatefold of Tusk and confecting <laughs> something, right? So you're sort of in this derivative loop, right? Where nobody's first person experience is the thing that's fertilizing or making specific or real the cultural product. And I didn't care. Familiar, like comfort and familiarity are, are other things that television can deliver, as we've often said about Law and Order, it's this like totally you've totally pre-metabolized the rhythms and the stops and the changes and the commercial breaks and the cliffhangers of an episode of Law and Order. That's why you love Law and Order. It is not in spite of, but because of, right? That's so interesting, Steve, because I think you've put your finger on. I had this feeling of like really loving the experience of watching it, but not quite respecting it. And then I was, I felt a desire to speak to my love of it. But, but you're right. The genericness of the seventies is really striking. And you're right too, Dana, about that. Like, if you think about what was really good about Mad Men, part of the conceit of that period and of many strong period pieces is that they surprise you with what the period really was. And they're like, this is what it really felt like. Oh, you think sixties, guess what? The sixties is really the fifties. And you know, uh, the civil rights movement in the South is like a tinny voice on a radio to this particular subset of Westchester white profession, white collar professionals or whatever. Um, and this, there's no, they're like, would you like to have a party at an iconic LA home and be a disco pioneer? Great. <laughs> like, that's, let's do that. That's the scene. <laughs> Put on a mood ring and get a fro because it's the 70s. We've got a station wagon, and does it have wood panels on the side? It does. <laughs> I mean, we should say, since we're talking about the origin, this does come from a novel, and I think that maybe, in a way, what Julia and I are responding to, I don't know if Steve is responding to it, like, it has a novelistic shape for a TV yes. show, which I, I kind of appreciate. It's it's based on this best-selling novel um, by Taylor Jenkins Reid, who is a really beloved author. I've never read anything by her, but my daughter read another one of her novels and really liked it. I mean, she writes sort of like, I think the impression I get is that she writes very addictive page-turning popular fiction and that's a little bit what this show unfolds like. I mean, I saw some reviewers saying, oh, it's a soap opera because, you know, it's more about the relationships and the crisscrossing romances in the band and so forth um, than necessarily about the business of music making. I mean, I think that's part of the appeal of it, that the female characters including the girlfriend of of the, the main um, male singer, the Sam Claflin character, I think are really well developed and get a lot of chances to live through different um, versions of, you know, being a woman, being a mother, being a famous woman. Um, and I, I like that feeling that, you know, we're going to watch them develop and change over the course of the of the season. 
I, I completely get what Julia says, though, about enjoying the show while not completely respecting it. It feels very silly and TV-like to me in parts, but it's also just kind of fun. Dana, just coming off of something you said, the band Fleetwood Mac was one of the great traveling soap operas of all time, <laughs> not just the 1970s. I mean, the internal psychosexual dynamics of that band were what made the songs what what they ended up being, as everyone, I think, basically knows about them. How has it never been fictionalized? They finally did it. It's Daisy Jones and the Six. It's on Amazon Prime. I think all three of us more or less loved it. Uh, all right, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Uh, I'm confident we have some. Dana, what, uh, what do you have over there? Stephen, our only item of business this week is to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we have a listener question from a listener named Mark, who asks, I have a couple of questions for Dana, for me, on the practicalities of movie criticism, but I'm open to others on their process, too. His notes include, how do you take notes during a screening when reviewing a long movie, which it seems like every movie is lately? Do you have to sneak out for a bathroom break? On a related note, do you snack or have drinks during the movie, etc., etc.? I have a lot to say about this myself as a movie critic for coming up on two decades. Like I've seen so many thousands of movies and had different kinds of experiences. So I'm curious to hear uh, how Julia and Steve treat work-related viewing as opposed to fun-related viewing. That will be our topic in the Slate Plus segment. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can stay tuned for that segment at the end of our show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can always sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. Members get ad-free podcasts. They get bonus content like the segment I just described, which lots of other shows offer as well. And they get unlimited access to all of the writing on Slate. So you'll never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member. These memberships matter a lot to us. So please sign up today, support the magazine at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, back to the show. Okay, well, Leah is a 17-year-old girl living in a sunbelt bumfuck with her single mom. She hangs out with her stoner, go-nowhere friends. Her mother leaves her emotionally starved, more or less. So she ends up falling in with a man roughly twice her age. He's played by Jonathan Tucker, Tom. He's a quiet, seething, slightly off guy in his early to mid-30s. And he plays upon her insecurities perfectly, slowly, slowly taking possession of her before our eyes. It's just unfathomably painful to watch. Palm trees and power lines. Uh, it stars Lily McInerney and Jonathan Tucker as Tom. In the scene we're about to hear, Leah and Tom are having what you might call their first date. Uh, it's sickening to call it that, but it's still unclear at this stage what the relationship is or what it might turn into. Anyway, let's have a listen. What do you want to do after high school? I haven't really thought about it. It's okay. I definitely didn't know what I wanted to do when I was your age. You don't have to. My mom thinks I should know what I'm interested in. You know, have hobbies. She thinks it'll help me get into college. Do you want to go to college? I mean, no offense to your mom. I'm sure she's a really nice person, but she might not know what she's talking about. You know, there's a lot of different ways to live a good life. And you don't have to go to college to do that. Okay, Dan, let me let me start with you. I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler to say this movie details an act of satanic uh, predation. What did you make of it? I mean, I have complicated feelings about it. It is very, very successful at what it sets out to do. 
as you say, it is really powerful. It's it's affecting. It's hard to watch because it's you know it's, it's about such an act of like you say, just sort of cold hearted, um, sadistic predation. And yet, I found myself a lot of the time feeling somewhat analytical and outside the movie emotionally for the most part. You, you get viscerally involved in watching things that are physically hard to watch. But I kept feeling like I didn't quite know who this girl was and why she was making the choices she was. Um, the, the character played by Lily McInerney is seems very naive in some ways, right? I mean, we see things happening that it's just you, you want to scream, run the other direction from the minute she first makes eye contact with this guy. Um, but in other ways, she seems to be really sophisticated is the wrong word, but, you know, somewhat exposed to things of the world. She's always hanging out, drinking and doing drugs with her friends. She's constantly on her phone. She and her friends are constantly dropping all kinds of pop culture references. It just seems a little bit strange, not that she would not be still a vulnerable kid, but that she wouldn't have some sort of framework for the danger of what she's falling into, even if, you know, she then we then see her defending it to herself or to someone else or, you know, finding some sort of justification. She just she seems as naive in relation to this this man in this relationship as um, an, an innocent farm girl, which she doesn't seem like in other scenes. And so at times I felt a little bit like I know too much where this movie is going and I'm not getting enough swerves along the way, you know, and so so that that ends up being I'm not going to say the movie is exploitive at all because it's extremely respectful of mm-hmm. of her. But it seemed like a story about exploitation rather than a story about two people having this experience. Um, all of that said, I mean, it's a pretty extraordinary debut. This is this is by, from a very young woman named Jamie Dack, who co-wrote it and directed it, and uh, and who is basing it on a short that she made, also with Lily McInerney, about the same subject. So actually, that made me think of our conversation a few weeks ago about short films, Julia, and when you were asking, what are short films for, given that they are so infrequently seen by anyone not on the festival circuit? I mean, part of what they're for is is kind of calling cards or sketches of features to come, and, you know, the, the, the short of the same title that Jamie Dack made a few years ago led to this movie. And it feels incredibly accomplished. It makes it seem that doing a short and then expanding it later into a feature is a smart thing for a young filmmaker to do, because this does not feel like a tentative feature film at all. It feels very assured. Yeah, it is very assured. And it also somehow felt off to me. Again, not in an exploitive way, but I was sort of like, why am I watching this and why like it I, I think your note that it felt a little bit like a lesson film or a or a this is how bad things happen to young women film even while the the relationship is believable in a lot of ways and the impulse toward excitement and danger and the adult is understandable and the portrayal of it is plausible um I sort of felt like I didn't want to be looking at it. And maybe that's just squeamishness on my part. Like maybe that's a testament to the power of the film. But there are some choices that our protagonist makes along the way that I think I I think I'm just echoing you that didn't quite feel right like they didn't actually feel true to the version of her that that's emerging and we can't really talk about the end of the film but to me the end of the film felt did not feel earned the final moment of the film um the character makes a surprising choice because the person that we've just spent you know nearly two hours with has so much composure in so many ways she did she she does not seem as desperate or perspectiveless as the choice that she finally makes suggests. And I don't mean to be cryptic, but, but I think that that false note there, that sense of distance that you described, Dana, really resonates for me. Yeah, I had mm-hmm. many moments of thinking, oh, I see what this film is trying to do, and it just yeah. did it skillfully. And that's very different from oh my God, what's going to happen to this right. character, Leah, next? Right. You know, and, and part of it, of course, Leah, the character played by Lily McInerney, is supposed to be something of a blank. You know, a blank is the wrong word, but she is a, um, she's a, a, an unformed girl. Impressionable. Right? 
very impressionable. And whether she is with this this grooming older guy or with her teenage friends, she seems to be a go along and get along kind of person who has trouble, um, you know, distinguishing herself and standing up to other people. So all of that is important to know about her. But that combined with her silence and stillness and this movie's silence and stillness right. makes for this very aesthetically composed and effective piece of drama but effective piece of drama is different from you know i'm right there with her right and i i think so what i loved about the film is it has like a french you know cineast's reverence for the human face like i do think um and it it didn't feel like a lazy choice to me it didn't feel like a consequence of the movie being underwritten there's a lot of like very close camera work on both of their faces but especially hers um and it has a patience for silences there are moments in life and in drama, broadly speaking, where silence actually is the appropriate response um, to a moment or what someone's just said. And I thought that that kind of, for lack of a better word, that pregnancy that sort of, you know, permeates this movie was exceedingly powerful. So in that sense, Jamie Dack has just, you know, pulled off something extraordinary. But the, the truth is, um, Tom, this character, he's got this kind of G.I. Joe body and a tight T-shirt and crazy eyes, like crazy ass eyes. And the movie is nauseating for being so inevitable. So much of its power derives from this feeling of just revulsion at the inevitability of what you see happening. I mean, you know, you know, from the minute you see him, that he's some form of predator. Um, And then secondly, I think what makes the movie so compelling is, is frankly, is her, which is that we know the audience knows how young she is and she doesn't know how young she is. And as, you know, father of daughters, like you just are dealing with that continually, right? Like, you know, there's a pseudo sophistication and a pseudo adulthood that especially in the age of social media and iPhones, very, very young girls, preteen girls can achieve a kind of fluency in a superficial fluency in the adult world, especially concerning sexuality that bears no relationship to their actual maturation level right and so i think that's part of what he's exploiting but i think the problem is for the movie to really work it has to do to you what it does to the protagonist to this poor little girl right it has to bring you along kind of slowly i think you should be confused about as she is at least somewhat confused about what his motives are but you never are he's so there's something so sort of quietly berserk about either this actor intrinsically or this performance by this actor. And if it could have brought you along more slowly, the turning points would have been, maybe they maybe there was no way not to make them inevitable, but they would have just had a shock that they kind of lacked. There's a numbness in some sense, Julia, to this movie, a kind of an anesthetic numbness to it in part because of the inevitability. And also, sadly, the believability that this is not uncommon right like that we are seeing something that happens i did have i think 15 or 20 minutes of the movie where i was a little bit more in that uncertain state i mean because you're watching a movie you assume that something's going to happen but he the way that those early kind of courtship scenes are written is reserved and mysterious. I mean, he's good. He's good. He's a good predator. Um, and I, I don't think I quite felt like I knew where it was going all along. But the actor who plays Tom, Jonathan Tucker, is is quite good, really interesting, very arresting face. But um, yeah, I, I had a bit more of that uncertainty, Steve, but, but still felt, um, ended up feeling outside outside the film somehow. Dana, any any final thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, lest listeners be saying, well, why are they talking about this movie that they all feel neutral about? I wouldn't say that my feeling about this film is neutral. I'm very intrigued by this filmmaker, Jamie Dack, and curious to see what she does next. I, I'm glad that movies like this are being made and exist, and I think there's a reason that people are responding to this movie because the content is obviously extremely timely. Um, it started to be made, the, the short that she based it on started to be made just in the wake of Me Too. I think it was 2018, the year that she made the the initial short. And so it's it's very much responding to to the moment that it's in. And uh, and I think if you can handle the subject matter and you're intrigued by our description, you should you should check out this movie. And I also just want to say in relation to what you said in your intro, Steve, that I'm, I'm glad now that Oscar season is over and that we can start just going 
going out there and dabbling in smaller movies out there that otherwise might not get get noticed. Yeah, that was going to be my button too, Dana. Is like, a please go see this movie. I mean, it, this is a extremely fruitful ambivalence to the extent we feel ambivalent about it. This is a remarkable first feature, and secondly, exactly that we're in that we're in the lovely little void after the Oscars, where big, huge budgets, massive amounts of sort of award bait, self importance. It's in abeyance right now. Small little movies that could they still exist. Sundance isn't what it was, but so what? Go see this. Seek this movie out watch it i really i really uh, i want to second what you just said okay it's called palm trees and power lines uh you can see it on amazon prime uh, we really do think you should check it out um and share in our ambivalence or or refute it by shooting us an email we'd love to hear from you okay let's move on this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance hey listeners whether you love true crime or comedies celebrity interviews news or even motivational speakers you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue right and guess what now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too enter the name your price tool from progressive the name your price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds you tell progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right. Well, hip hop turns 50 this year, but the way hip hop makes music remains completely unprotected by law. So writes Dan Charnas in Slate. It's an essay about sampling. And we're now joined by Dan. Uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I should say Dan Charnas is a, a one of the pioneers of hip hop journalism. He's the author of a ch- really great book about hip hop called The Big Payback. If you haven't read it, you ought to read it. It's one of the definitive studies uh, of the evolution of hip hop, Dan. It's great to have you on, and it's sort of a shame that the occasion for it is a cultural crime. One <laughs> evidence of which is the fact that De La Soul's classic album, Three Feet High and Rising, was until very, very recently unavailable on the music streaming services because of its uh, extensive use of sampling. Talk a little bit about this as a cultural crime, and then we'll get to the legal aspects of it of it later. Well. Sonic pastiche as a way of composition has been around for, you know, at least, uh, you know, 75, maybe 100 years, uh, almost 100 years anyway. Um, what is that? What does that mean? It means instead of composing music through playing uh, notes and chords and then transcribing that onto a, a sheet of paper or a computer and saying, hey, these are the these are the guidelines for this particular piece of music, whether it's Summertime by Gershwin or Yesterday by Lennon and McCartney. Sonic pastiche composition is different. It says we're going to take little patches and pieces of existing sound and put them together in a collage. And that is going to be the musical bed uh, for a piece of music. One very famous early example of this is a song called Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles that they recorded in, I believe, early 1966 for their album Revolver. So it's been in our culture for a while, but it was hip-hop in the 1980s and 1990s that really made good on this idea that you can create music by piecing together and collaging pieces of audio. And in fact, it was way more complex than anything, you know, 
the early pioneers, including the Beatles, imagined. And one more thing, it's it's based around a canon, C-A-N-O-N, of about 100 records, uh, 100 what we call break records. These are records that are almost like you know, equivalent to the five books of Moses, right, of of hip-hop. They're particular records that have particular drum breaks on them or or rhythm section breakdowns um, that are kind of the lingua franca of hip-hop, how MCs and DJs and producers all and fans all talk to each other. So that's that's what Sonic Pastiche composition is. The problem is, as you said, this way of composition is not protected by law at all. In fact, one might say that it's illegal, right? Unless the people who are piecing together these collages get permission from each and every one of the, not only the folks who own the recordings, but the folks who own the songs that are being recorded on those recordings. You know, something I wanted to clarify for our listeners, because it was a new concept to me when I read your piece, uh, has to do with compulsory license, I believe is the phrase for it, which is the way things have historically worked in uh, in copyright law in music. And I wonder if you could describe pre-hip-hop, right, in, the, in that century of recording that existed before this phenomenon of sampling arose. How did it work when you wanted to use someone's song? Sure. Uh, and that's a great question. Uh, you know, frankly, we are comfortable with certain kinds of copying, or we've enshrined certain kinds of copying into our law. And one of those things that we take for granted almost is my ability to cover or remake a song that you write. As long as you've performed it first, as long as it has been performed or recorded somewhere, after that first recording or first recorded performance, Anyone in the world can remake that song in a recording as long as I pay you a a rate mandated by statute. And what that's called is a compulsory license. It's not a license that I have to go seek your permission for. It's a license that you're compelled to give me. And the question is, well, why would we compel artists to do that? Well, it goes back to sort of one of the original conceptions of copyright, which is we want to strike a balance between uh, commerce and creation, right? If nobody has copyright at all, if anybody can, can remake anybody's song without compensation, there's no reason to get into the business of art because you can't make money from your inventions. It works the same way in patent law too. Um, and if basically all the ideas are locked up, it's very hard to create without risking infringement. So the compulsory license is one of those uh, compromises in our culture that strikes a balance between commerce and art. And that's why you get Frank Sinatra remaking something uh, written by George Harrison um, or you know the bajillion remakes of Yesterday by Lennon and McCartney and on and on and on. And what's the origin of that idea? I mean, in some ways, I, I had twin responses to your piece. The first was, I can't believe I never thought about the fact that you can re-record a song, but you can't use a bit of a song's recording. And I think the argument you make that this particular um, iteration of, of copyright policy now, where the original recorder has to approve and negotiate compensation for the sample for it to be used and the chilling effect that's having on the creation of new hip hop and the availability of, of hip hop classics is incredibly compelling. Um, and I also, how, how do we even get to the place where you have the right to record anybody's song? Like that's also a, a, the flip side is that seems weird. Like basically it seems weird both ways. It seems weird that we can't do what you're proposing here. And it also seems a little weird. Like, why should you have the right to record my song? How did we get there? Well, I think part of it has to do with if what what happens if you don't let folks uh, re-record uh, other folks' songs or even perform them. I mean, you could extend this concept of what we we call moral rights or, or droit moral, uh, you know, as the term is known. Um, 
that artists have a certain right uh, to govern the destiny of their creations. But if that's the case, you end up with folks infringing, essentially, people owning ideas that can't even be owned. For example, there's a song that you might be familiar with called Twist and Shout by the Isley Brothers from the 19, I believe, early 1960s uh, or late 1950s. Uh, And there's also a song called La Bamba by Richie Valens. And they both have the same melody. And I believe La Bamba might have come first, right? So if, you know, Richie Valens or his estate, you know, uh, you know, because he, he, he passed, right, prevented uh, the Isley Brothers from writing Twist and Shout because it was too close to La Bamba. We wouldn't have Twist and Shout. There are so many ideas that we are comfortable with sharing, right? Uh, chord progressions. The one four five chord progression is ubiquitous in our popular music. We're comfortable with that kind of copying and that kind of sharing. But there are other pieces that we're not so comfortable with. And I guess the irony for me is you can do that kind of copying, literally copy the melody, copy the chord progression, and just put some different lyrics on top of it, and it's considered to be a different song. But if a producer like, say, Jay Dilla, the late Jay Dilla, who I recently wrote a book about who many people consider to be the at the apex of the sampled art form takes a piece of harp from a jazz record and reverses it Mm -hmm. he could still be held liable for infringing on the copyright of the owner of the master recording and the songwriter and that is just insane to me so how notional is your argument here? Like, to what degree is this like a, a thought experiment for the digital pages of Slate? And to what degree is this <laughs> a proposal that could have any muscle behind it? Well, it's a grenade <laughs> thrown into the marketplace of ideas, so to speak. Um, and the occasion was the finally the release of De La Soul's uh, catalog for digital streaming and the fact that uh, the producer, Prince Paul, had to strip away a bunch of different uh, songs that just for whatever reason could not be cleared. And some of those pieces of music are tremendously valuable as, as American culture, as works of art. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's again, it's just, it just makes me furious that here we have a guy like Jay Dilla, one of the producers of De La Soul in later years, who has his his sampler is in the Smithsonian. He's taught in the academy and yet everything he ever did was essentially unprotected by law. Dan, I love both the nitty gritty of the piece, which is so specific. I love how heartfelt it is that there's a kind of that, you know, as I said, a cultural crime, like like we're deprived of something because it's been um, withheld thanks to archaic copyright law. Um, but I also love how complex the overlay and conflicts between various claimants are here. Like, of course, people are borrowing from these 50 tracks. They're elemental, right? They are the rocks, the airs and the trees to a new art form, right? They're the elemental thing that this new art form was built out of, but they originated in someone's individual creative imagination. So I guess I'm sort of asking the almost metaphysical version of Julia's question, like, are there moments when you see this as something that's almost irresolvable? Uh, I mean, I would tend to to say that as a practical matter, it might be irresolvable. But as somebody who thinks deeply about this issue, I think it actually is resolvable. Yeah. I think we have uh, essentially a 
a as um, a, an incredible writer on this, and I believe he's also a Slate uh, contributor, um, Siva Vaidyanathan. Um, you know, he wrote a book called Copyrights and, and Copy Wrongs mm. that essentially was an argument for a thinner conception of copyright. Like what we have now essentially is copyright that instead of being in the middle of serving owners versus serving new creators, yeah. we have it moving towards owners and it's corporate ownership, essentially, corporations that have pushed us toward that thicker copyright. And it uses this moral rights argument to say, well, you know, we we should be able to say as artists or as the owners of these copyrights how these ideas are disposed of in the marketplace. But the thinner conception of copyright says, you know what? Uh, you put it in the marketplace to begin with. So what you're owed, once you put it in the marketplace and it can be bought and sold, what you're owed is compensation. That's what you're right. owed. You're, we do not owe you as a, as a polity, as a public, because remember, it's the public that controls copyright. It's public policy. Mm -hmm. There's no innate right to any of this. We, the people, decide what copyright is and what protections are. Yeah. And again, this moral rights overreach is reflected in the hypocrisy of we have a compulsory license for cover songs – uh, but we don't have compulsory licenses for parts of songs or parts of recordings. Mm. Parody is completely allowed, right? Supreme Court ruled on parody. So I can make fun of your song. Yeah. I can weird Al Yankovic it all day. But if I want to take a tiny little piece of a snare or something like that, that is a potential infringement. So... I just think what we have is an overreach of moral rights. We have drifted way too far towards uh, what Siva calls the thicker version of copyright. And it's, uh, as it has been said, it's time to stop the insanity. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much, A, for writing such a great piece, and B, for taking my befuddled question and turning it into an exquisite answer. Uh, it's very appreciated. The piece is, uh, it's time to legalize sampling. It's by Dan Charnas. It's up on Slate now. Dan... Really, thank you so much for coming on the show. Huge fan, and it's great to finally talk to you. Oh, man, such an honor, and thank you so much. I had fun. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights now! With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you have? This is a very intuitive endorsement that's just based on an association I had while watching Palm Trees and Power Lines, the movie we talked about this week. 
while I was watching it, I kept thinking, well, the basic setup to this really, really reminds me of Smooth Talk. And then I thought, I don't think I've ever endorsed Smooth Talk on the Culture Fest, which I think is one of the great, great teen coming of age movies, which has a premise that is not dissimilar to to Palm Trees and Power Lines. Are you all familiar with Smooth Talk from 1985? No, but it's ringing a deep, semi-buried bell. Remind me. I mean, you've probably heard about it just in the context of Laura Dern's career. It's it's Laura Dern as a teenager, or yes! it may be that she's a little bit older than in her teens, but she's playing a 15-year-old. And it's just the story of, I mean, it's the setup is almost identical at the beginning to Palm Trees and Powerline. She's a bored teenager in the summer who's hanging out with her friends and sort of going nowhere and uh, and meets up with an older guy played by Treat Williams, and they have this... They have this kind of creepy, um, you know, I won't get into what happens between the two of them, but it's as creepy as you might imagine it would be when a menacing hippie played by Treat Williams meets a thinks she's sophisticated teen played by young Laura Dern. And uh, it's also directed by a woman, which in 1985, when this movie was made, was was a more unusual circumstance. It's not her first film, but it's her first feature film. The director's named Joyce Chopra, and she had made only documentaries up to that point. And it's brilliant. I mean, it's one of those movies that's like a talisman. You know, like once people know about Smooth Talk, they know and they kind of pass it between each other. Um, And for a very, very long time, it was hard to see. It was it was one of those movies like Silkwood is right now. That's like nowhere. It's not on DVD. It rarely streams anywhere. It's just very lucky when you can find some some movies for some reason. They kind of go underground. And this one did for a long time. But it is streaming right now on the Criterion channel. It may be rentable in other places, too. And uh, I mean, I don't want to say it's a better version of Palm Trees and Power Lines, but I think it's a movie that has lasted through the decades in a way that mm-hmm. I'm not sure that movie will. It's just beautiful. So um, Smooth Talk, directed by Joyce Chopra. Seek it out while you can. And things on the Criterion channel don't stay forever. So watch it soon. I saw that movie when it came out. I, I have literally buried it in my consciousness. That is amazing. That, it's so good. Mary Kay Place is, is in it. She yeah. plays her mom. Levon Helm is in it. It's, it's a really unusual, one of those movies that just has a, a very specific mood and just nails it. I, I, yeah, it is amazing. I, exactly how you describe it is how I now remember it. And as I recall, Treat Williams is is an amazing performance by Treat Williams as this cozening satanic hippie who seduces her. Anyway, um, yeah, that's great. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I have to share the recent experience of turning on my car and having the local country station come on. Um, And sometimes that happens and I'm like not in the mood for country, but for whatever reason this night, the local country station was in the middle of playing this song that just arrested me the way a country song can. Um, and it just has a, a heartbreaking little turn in its lyric, in its chorus. The song is called You Didn't. Uh, it's by Brett Young, who's a relatively young on the scene country musician, one of those country musicians who grew up a baseball pitcher in Orange County, California. And, um, you know, the You Didn't of the title is a, a whole long song about kind of letting letting the girlfriend go. And it mounts to this chorus line, I fell in love, but you didn't. What a great country sentiment. What a great country line. Just totally grabbed me. So my endorsement this week is the song You Didn't by Brett Young. (laughs) My God, I got to check that out. Um, All right. So yesterday, oddly enough, I was in a conversation with someone who made an offhand reference to the poetics of space. They weren't even referring to the book of that name from the late 50s. They were just using it as a concept to describe a kind of non-space. I think it was an elevator. It sort of lacked the poetics of space or something like that. And I was like, yeah, I've never read that. And, you know, it was one of those books. It's by the French philosopher Gaston Bachelard. And it, it, it was written in the late 50s, so it preceded the sort of big rush of theory, French theory in the 60s and 70s that then came to the United States in the 80s, you know. But all of those guys, uh, Foucault, Derrida, Bourdieu, they were all massively influenced by Bachelard and this masterpiece of his, supposed masterpiece, that in grad school everyone pretended to have read, and probably nobody did, called The Poetics of Space. So I was like, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to read like on Amazon, like the free sample of the first chapter. I was hypnotized by it. It was not the book I was expecting. It's so 
wonderfully evocative and poetic and human. It's right. It's just about how the eye of the self and the not eye of the house. It's very much about like the infant's experience of shelter developing into a sense of home. And it's so beautifully done, right? It's like exactly that subject matter that the mellifluous bullshit of the French philosopher, you know, which is sort of all sheen and poetry and no depth and substance or rigor, it kind of, it kind of is the perfect medium to, to, to describe this like Heideggerian apprehension of being and selfhood and, and the physical reality of architecture. And I understand why actual architects have been powerfully influenced by it. I just have to read one passage. I mean, every passage struck me, like resonated with me, but at one point in the first chapter, he says, the values that belong to daydreaming mark humanity in its depths. Therefore, the places in which we have experienced daydreaming reconstitute themselves in a new daydream. And it is because our memories of former dwelling places are relived as daydreams that these dwelling places of the past remain with us for all time. I mean, I think all of life is a kind of meditation on what counts as home in a way. And I just wasn't expecting a book that's kind of a prose poetic evocation of that. I thought it was going to be some wildly pretentious, you know, sort of quasi sociological heap of, you know, guilt tripping about like power and, you know, dynamics within spaces, public and private. And it, it may evolve into that, but the first 20 or 30 pages are just ex really an exquisite um, expression of how we find ourselves at home in physical spaces. So I, I know this is a subject you care about a lot, Julia. I highly recommend it. I was shocked. It's And the Penguin has a beautiful edition of it, and it's short, <laughs> right? It's like the yeah, one... Yeah, no, this know, sounds the, so interesting to me. I'm definitely going to check it out. Anyway, so uh, The Poetics of Space by Gaston Bachelard, and um, if it's a book you particularly love or hate, listener... Um, send us an email. I'd love to hear from you. All right. Well, Julia, thank you so much. That was fun. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. big money when you start your next project today at menards check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock ready to take home today we carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest menards you can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on menards.com Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. 
This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.